When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for June 30th, 2016, the Live from the Aspen Ideas Festival edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm joined at the St. Regis Hotel in Aspen, Colorado, as part of the Aspen Ideas Festival by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine to my left, and John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation, to my further left. On this week's GabFest, how could anyone possibly believe that less fortunate Americans should be indignant about a privileged cosmopolitan elite harvesting all the spoils of capitalism? I don't know how they could possibly believe that in a place like Aspen. It just seems impossible. We, we will talk about Brexit and Trumpism and the terrifying forces of nationalism and populism that are gathering strength around the world. Then the Supreme Court issued its most sweeping ruling in generation around abortion rights. Is the court's conservative counter-revolution over? <laughs> plus, we'll have cocktail chatter, and there's going to be a special Slate Plus this week. It's not going to be as part of the show. You're going to look in your feed later, Slate Plus subscribers, and you can get a special interview that John Dickerson and Stephen Colbert did at 92nd Street Y last month. If you're not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash gabfestplus. Also, in Washington on July 13th, we have a live show at the Warner Theater. You can get tickets for that show at slate.com slash live. It's going to be a great show. It'll be right before the conventions. So join us there, slate.com slash live. Is anyone in this room planning to vote for Hillary Clinton? And is, is anyone in this room planning to vote for Donald Trump? <laughs> so the irony of the conversation that we're about to have is not lost on us. Wait. We are sitting... Could you help the audience the, uh, with a translation of what may have happened since... What just happened? Hillary, Hillary Clinton had a few more supporters in the room there was, than Donald there Trump. There was a very small number of hands for Donald Trump and a large number for Hillary Brave Clinton. Brave hands, yeah. which we appreciated. Oh, yeah. what about, Gary, what about Johnson? Gary Johnson? Excellent. And we have a few Gary Johnson supporters as well. We are sitting in a fancy hotel room at the Aspen Ideas Festival. If there is a ground zero for the pro-immigration, pro-globalism, anti-populist elitism, it is probably this spot at this week. <laughs> and your actual chair. Maybe my, my actual chair. But it's what, this is why it's going to be a fun place to have a conversation about this very dark time that we're having. With the victory of Brexit and the rise of Trump and the surge of populist, nativist, mercantilist nationalism across the United States and the EU, the 50-year movement towards freer trade, freer migration, tolerance, globalism is under threat, and maybe for good reason. Why at this moment are so many Americans and Europeans tempted by retreat, by the shutting of doors, and enticed by the, the anger and frustration and, and discontent of authoritarian politicians? I am happy to say we are not going to tackle this question alone because we're in Aspen. There are, uh, we're surrounded by a lot of great minds and great leaders. And one of my favorite politicians and, and leaders of America is here and is going to join us. That's Mitch Daniels, the president of Purdue University, former governor of Indiana, director of the Office of Management and Budget for President George W. Bush. That sounded like a cue, was it? It was that a cue. Was that was a cue. Welcome. welcome, welcome, Mitch Daniels. John, let's start with you. We have a Trump speech this week, which promised a trade war with China, promised a pulling out of NAFTA. It, uh, it's it talked about uh, tearing up the TPP. Uh, it was excoriated by the Chamber of Commerce, which usually, if a Republican politician sneezes, the Chamber of Commerce says that's a great sneeze. And what is going on that Donald Trump 
is is taking positions that are so antithetical to where the Republican Party has usually been. Well, we, this is a continuation of a, of a tension inside the Republican Party. We saw this in the primaries, too. I mean, the Chamber of Commerce and Donald Trump have, have been on the opposite side of the trade question. Donald Trump believes, and has an audience that believes that trade policy and the promises of trade have not been broadly shared. And, uh, and that's worked out really well for him in the Republican primary. It, it's just another way. I mean, if you look at the splits that Trump has with the, the establishment of the Republican Party and with the Speaker of the House and the, and the majority leader of the Senate, trade is one of the big ones. But also we have immigration, we have entitlements, foreign policy. So we're just having the trade moment. But it's a part of any one of those. You could have a similar moment uh, with him. You know, his argument in addition to what he's the claim he's making to conservatives is that there are a group of Sanders voters out there who will hear his anti-trade speeches and be attracted to his campaign. I think that's a, I think it's a bit of a stretch to make that case. Um, but anyway, that's, that's the gambit behind the speech in addition to trying also to put Hillary Clinton in a box. I mean, you've got to remember what Hillary Clinton did. The argument she made from a national security standpoint about TPP in particular, she was a supporter. She was a strong proponent of that trade deal. And John Kerry, the Secretary of State who spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival, made a very strong pitch for TPP, both on trade grounds, but more important on national security grounds. The United States has to have relationships with other Asian countries to uh, build a wall of against China. She was very much in keeping with that argument. She then changed that during the Democratic primary after a lot of pause. And so Trump wants to try to put her in a, in a bit of a bind by bringing up the issue. President Daniels. That's a phrase I always want to say. President Daniels. Is the GOP, is the GOP going to be able to, after Trump, fuse these two entirely different worldviews about trade, economy, entitlements, migration? Is this a coherent party anymore? And if it has to choose one, one path or the other, which one is it going to be on? Uh, please forgive, first of all, my constant disclaimer. I can speak about these subjects, but not for anybody. I'm not an active uh, uh, partisan and haven't been since I accepted the current responsibility. But I'll try to give you, a, I hope, a, a clinical take on the question. I think I don't think we can get very far analyzing the uh, Trump phenomenon or uh, Britain or other countries we could name for that matter in uh, logical, rational, um, uh, civics exam uh, uh, terms. Uh, there's always an emotional content to politics, and I think we're seeing a very uh, strong one here. I think economic apprehension is, at, is the biggest root of it, a crummy economy, the pathetically weak and I think largely self-imposed lousy economy that has made it very expensive to hire people and has forced a lot more people into either into temporary work, so-called contingent work, or out of participation altogether is, is factor one. But factor two... And I, I thought it was great, your self-awareness uh, at the beginning about where we're sitting and who we're surrounded by. There are a lot of people in this country who are not often encountered anymore by people and leaders of our institutions, unless they make a special effort to do so, who feel patronized, who feel condescended to, who feel disdained. And uh, I think there's a very, there's a very palpable part of the Trump vote. It's explained that way. That's why it's not that surprising, really, that if you line up a list of issues, say, well, these people say they're for him and they're not voting. This is not what they believe. That's because that's not the heart of his appeal. And um, I think the social distance question in this country, the, uh, the, thing, the kind that people like uh, Charles Murray and others have been researching, uh, is one that ought to occupy our attention just as much as the economic questions that tend to dominate Washington dialogue. Well, one of the things about the social distance that I keep thinking about is that now we are more focused on white people, white resentment, the white working class, people who um, graduated from high school, had factory jobs or manufacturing jobs that have gone away. And their anger and resentment is kind of front and center, both in the Brexit vote and in thinking about the Trump phenomenon. And Bernie Sanders supporters also skewed white. But we've had for generations a problem of people being left out of the economy who were people of color living in cities. We took away cash welfare from them. We were, you know, quite judgmental and stingy in the way we thought about them. And so I 
I'm not exactly sure what to do with this, but I feel like there's this, you could see it as an opportunity right now to think about people's reasons for feeling dispossessed and, um, at writ large in a way that could translate for all the different kinds of Americans who have these feelings. And yet it, it seems to always be divisive rather than something that brings us together in a way that I find deeply frustrating. Right, so it's your argument or is it the point that social, we've always had social distance is that the group that has felt the social distance from the elite and from the power centers has shifted from being one, which is minority and poor to being one that is white and increasingly poorer than it had been. Yeah, uh, that we're hearing from those people. And I also think the social distancing is just increasing. So I think... And it's increased to the point where it may throw an election, where it may control an election in a way it hasn't for, you know, several centuries or several decades. I mean, the other thing is Trump and Bernie Sanders have a point, right? I mean, there are a lot of people losing out of free trade. Even if the country, the world is better off as a whole, that doesn't mean it benefits everyone. And I was really struck that the day after... Soon after Trump gave a speech, there's this New York Times op-ed by Bernie Sanders essentially making the same pitch, lots of very stark statistics about inequality and inequity, talking about we don't need free trade, we need fair trade. But I don't know what that means. I don't know what the solution is here. And it doesn't seem to me that either the left or the right in expressing their frustration have come up with any kind of viable option. And so then, again, I think it helps explain why Trump is appealing, because it's not like Hillary Clinton's folks have some, you know, policy paper that exactly explains what we're supposed to do. Governor Daniels, you are the president of a university, which is a, it's a, you know, it's a famously great university around the sciences and engineering in particular. And is also, I think, I remember looking at stats about this. It is one of the, has one of the highest absolute numbers of foreign students of any university in the country. And right now we're seeing this significant rise in skepticism about immigration at the same time, you are bringing in students who presumably, if they stayed in America, are going to contribute to companies and do great work. What's the explanation that we can give to bridge the gap between those who say that immigration is this tremendous threat and the, the clear economic benefits that a university like yours gives to the country? I don't think it's that hard. Uh, maybe there's someone here who thinks that the, we shouldn't have any uh, control of our borders at all. Anybody who wants to come, come on in and, by the way, uh, take part in our very generous social welfare system uh, from the day you get here. Probably not. Never been a nation on earth that I can think of that operated that way. So the question is, uh, what, are, what are the standards? What are the limits and so forth? I also don't think they're in this room or in the, in the homes of uh, Trump supporters, for that matter, You'd find many people who think it's a dumb idea to let in brilliant people or people who come prepared to invest dollars, start businesses, and so forth. Uh, So our neighbors to the north, Canada, have a pretty sensible system. It's not easy to get into Canada, but if you're bringing something that will strengthen the country, it is. You know, I think the elements of on this particular issue of a of progress, maybe not a complete solution, but progress have been there around those two things all along. But uh, there are people on both sides who don't want to let that happen because they have other agendas, amnesty and so forth, that might not be part of that consensus and might take longer to get to uh, if if we did have agreement on on forward motion. But I, I have to tell you that uh, uh, we do all we can to make certain that those students feel welcome in America. I think it's one of the public services a university like ours can do. Bring them here, train them with excellence. And make them friends of America. I want them to be friends of America whether they stay or go home. And uh, how I wish that we could uh, put a green card in every diploma that we, hand, <laughs> that we handed out last uh, month because some of the most brilliant young minds in the world came to Purdue and became brighter. That's a good line. That's a good line. Green card with every diploma. Can I just say one thing? The crystal ball's a little cloudy on the immigration issue because you talked about, I mean, there's obviously an anti-immigrant sentiment, but... It is still true that the majority of Americans favor a pathway to citizenship, even for the people who are undocumented workers in America now. And it's also true, I think this is still true, that in most of the exit polls, Republicans favored a pathway to citizenship, even those Republicans who were voting for Donald Trump in primaries and caucuses that he won. Now, what they didn't support, or I should say what they did support by bigger margins, is a ban against temporary Muslim immigration. So you'd have states in which a majority of people in the Republican primary supported a pathway, but then also supported a ban. So that 
that's obviously a mixed message there, but it's not that revolt you mention is not even the majority position in the Republican Party, at least in terms of the voters in the primary process. The, 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 that immigration question, how much it, it guides politics is a good place to turn to Britain and to Brexit. So, Emily, is there is there any chance that Trump is a Brexit like experience for America or what, why wouldn't it? Why won't it be? If it doesn't happen, it will be because Britain has, I think, about 8% non-white people voting. And that is really different than the number of minority voters we have in America right now. And so the power of... Which is 30%, I think. Yeah. And so the power of the kind of politics of resentment that we're talking about may not fly here. And I think then if you start looking at the swing states and how the um, demographics break down there, that seems to be even a stronger argument. It's a different... Yeah, we have a different set of demographics. Right, a different. So you, the different electorate here is the is the firewall against Trump. So you have the minority vote problem. You have the younger voters problem for him. And then, as Ron Brownstein's been pointing out, that right now Hillary Clinton in the polls is winning among college educated voters. If she did that, if she kept that all the way to the the um, election, then she'd be the first Democrat to win among college educated. Why does that matter? Because if there is still a consensus about trade, it's going to be with the college educated portion of the electorate and the minority portion of the electorate and the younger voters. All three of those groups are ones that Trump has weaknesses with and seems since he's been the nominee of the Republican Party in the last couple of months, seems only to be furthering his problems with those constituencies. So he's so his ability to dig himself out of that hole is a challenge. He may increase his share of the the white vote, the white high school educated or non four year college educated vote, but there just aren't enough of those voters. So the theory goes in the electorate. Also, I think that in Brexit, it was you were voting on kind of a question. You weren't voting on a person. And it's very different to have to vote. Yes, on it's a clear person. they weren't yeah, voting go... on a person at all because there's no one who seems yes, even the people ready right. to right. take over. No, I mean it's interesting. The British politicians are now like the the dog that caught the postal van. They just don't. <laughs> They're like, wait, Who me? what do I do? I don't think so. Well, I, th- I, I think thought it was always a fire I think that is really a, I think you got to wait a while on that. Uh, one reason that I don't think. On, on I, which, uh, wait a while on which question? Oh, on how, uh, uh, how uh, absolutely sure you, uh, so many people seem to be, this is a terrible mistake, that it's going to be the ruin of Britain. It's going to, you know, not so fast. We don't know that at all. And uh, I, I do think there are big differences here. I don't think they're the ones Emily talked about so much as the one you just did. The messenger's different. The messengers in Britain, oh, people dumped on them. But, you know, these are articulate, thoughtful people with long careers in, in public uh, life. And uh, but You're be, that's not the case with the current Republican but, uh, nominee. But, no, but, you, know, but, you can draw your own conclusion. But uh, <laughs> Boris but Johnson the thing, is kind of a clown figure, yeah. though. Yeah, here, here's, yeah, here's, well... He's smart. He's smarter than Trump, think, but he's a clown. That, uh, he's he, like the he, internet uh, hot takes and, and, guy. Of like politics. I wish more of our politicians did. He appreciates he, uh, the importance of not taking everything so very seriously, a little levity now and then. Uh, <laughs> I don't think he's in the same category as the nominee here. Um, but the, the more, maybe the, where I do see a parallel is apparently a broad swath of British opinion, including Emily, 30% of labor voters voted for leave, and it appears that one of their motivations was a weariness with being dictated to by an unelected elite who seemed to not only make choices that they might not have made, but to do it with disdain and almost contempt, and just listening to the, I'm not casting a vote here for leave, I'm agnostic, but I have to say that I thought it was a little bit satisfying if not amusing, the, the, the adjectives, the language, uh, xenophobia, racist, and all this being the invective being poured out on these people who voted in a significant majority for leave, I thought was reflective of the kind of attitude that has generated this counter-reaction in both countries. I, I want to stand up for unelected elites. I think... I I do Especially think I do think that you're in the right it's, place it's, to do it. It's a, <laughs> I, picked a, I picked a good audience. Yeah, <laughs> you're taking a big risk here. He yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There are no elected elites. Anyone not elite here? <laughs> Anyone elected? Yeah. Um, no, I think. I mean, the thing that I that worries me about uh, about Brexit as a as a moment or as a signal is the idea that 
50 years of economic integration, of uh, increased prosperity, of freer trade, of free migration of people is undone by a kind of, you know, basically a casually taken de populist democratic vote. That seems to me terribly dangerous. That, that if democracy to me is not mass elections where people, where people cast a ballot a, a, across a whim. It's they elect people who are smart people who then represent them and make decisions. It's, 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 it's signal to me that the, if you poll members of parliament in Britain, 75% of them support staying in the EU. These are the people who have been elected, presumably as representatives, as tribunes of the people, and that they support it means something. They've studied it. They understand the benefits what of it. That, I think that's, a, that's important. What if that relationship keeps breaking down? What if every time you elect them, because this is what's happened in America, if every time you've elected them, you said, the field is tilted against me, and I'm going to elect you to rebalance things. And then in election after election, they don't do it. You've given them your vote, and you're hoping they'll act on your behalf, and they continue to make bad deals that hurt you. And they explain to you that it's not really hurting you because it's helping you more broadly, and you have a nicer TV than, even though your wages are flat, your TV's nicer than the people in the generation before you, and you have more home appliances, so your standard of living has really gone up. And that's just irritating. So what's the mechanism after going through election after election where you've been disappointed and your needs have not been met by your lawmakers, and they behave in even more abstract and irritating ways, Sometimes you want to punch him in the nose. Yeah. They're clapping for punching yeah. in the nose. All right, everyone you know, punch each other in the nose. Compelling. Right, but it's, I, I, I mean, I think, you know, I would throw this back to you, Governor Daniels. You've been the governor of a state, and I think you surely have felt at times that, that the people want things which maybe you and your wisdom as a leader don't want to give them. Yes, of course. Very often the, the assignment of leadership is to uh, advocate things that people haven't thought about before and try to bring them together around it. That's I, th I always thought that was the central assignment. I look forward one day to a day when our national leadership stops trying to us them every question and castigate and uh, uh, people who disagree and and uh, tries to speak the language of unity again. And we've got some problems we will not solve in this country until we do. But. But but that's a little different. I I, I still believe from a from a very distant uh, elite. I mean, uh, Emily celebrating certain Supreme Court decisions. Okay, I, I'm not taking a position on those. I'll just say that when for many many years, either people in bureaucratic positions or perhaps in judicial positions have overruled, struck down the the, the will of people, perhaps reflected in policies that have been there for a long long time. Don't be surprised when there's some natural reaction or resentment. I know I'm soon to be evicted, and I don't want to change the subject completely, but I do want to say a word on behalf of, that I think is supports your point of view in a slightly different way, and that is to contrast the selection processes of our two parties in a way that complements the Democratic Party. They have uh, arranged a process, their superdelegates, etc., in which a very large percentage, a controlling percentage, in fact, a uh, decisive uh, number of delegates come there with the right motive. Let's pick a winner, which means, by definition, let's pick somebody who can ap appeal successfully to a broad section of America. And um, the uh, Republican uh, process has been run uh, in, in a way that everybody seemed to think was starting in the 70s, was more democratic and, and uh, dictated by primary outcomes. And the, with the upshot that Someone who got a minority of the vote got a majority of the delegates. I see a poll today that says a majority of Republicans say they'd like someone other than the presumptive nominee, but they're not going to get their wish. And so credit to the Democratic Party for preserving a system that has the virtues of the old smoke-filled room, whatever its defects, people went to those meetings with one thought only. Who can we pick who could gather together a majority of Americans and win this election? We, we gave up something when we dismissed that uh, as, a, as a, a relic of the past. Last uh, question on this subject, and then we'll let you go, Governor. But actually, Emily, I'll start with you on this, which is we have in Trump, in some of the leaders in Austria and Hungary, there's this kind of incipient authoritarian personality that we see in some of the, the leaders coming out of these populist nationalist movements. Is that accidental? Is that a function of the nature of the politics? Should we worry a lot about that? 
Or should we instead see this as actually, no, this is a good expression of we, we should value the things that the governor Daniels was talking about. The populist uprising is valuable in and of itself. And the, yes, these personalities are maybe problematic, but the good is coming out of the, the, the populist uprising. I mean, I suppose the argument for it is that it's a release valve, that there are some air, some frustration uh, that is getting let that people have an outlet for. But what worries me about it is that it seems so related to this moment of politics by tweeting and go- sound bites on television and a kind of reality TV approach to, uh, if not governing, at least campaigning, that just seems very divorced from the hard work of actual governance. And that seems like it creates a danger of just raising people's expectations in the way that I think Trump is doing in a way that he would never be able to deliver. He won't be the person who finally punches everyone else in the nose because what he's promising is not possible to achieve. And he's not being held accountable for that because he has this quasi demagogic streak that is like overcompensating for it. So Governor Daniels to ask that question in a slightly different way. How do we get the benefits of the of recognizing this populist this populist anger and frustration without the authoritarian yeah. like dumbass politicians? <laughs> you don't have well, to I, re- use the word dumbass. That was my word. <laughs> I mean, I it's it starts with genuine empathy, which I think is lacking on both sides. I I I agree with Emily and what and with the premise of your question, but I would point out that we got to worry about authoritarianism of all stripes. You want to see authoritarianism, visit a college campus these days where free speech has been, uh, in too many cases, um, violated, uh, uh, where uh, some folks have developed the idea and, are, and are, have taught it to our children that the right answer to uh, arguments you disagree with is not, to, uh, is not better arguments, but to silence them by force if necessary. You know, there's an almost comical event happened last week which you probably wouldn't have noticed, but a year or so ago, some scholarly research was produced that said that people of a so-called conservative viewpoint had a more authoritarian outlook on life. Last week, it was retracted in total. It turns out they coded it wrong. It was people of a liberal persuasion <laughs> who had the most authoritarian outlook about, about uh, dictating outcomes, <laughs> oops, with a giant O. So I, um, the, the, pro- the point is we have this problem on both sides. And liberal in the classical sense of that term, traditions of freedom of inquiry, freedom of speech, respect, civility in the public discourse, have got to make a comeback somehow. And uh, we just have to uh, appeal to our leaders and and look for those leaders, I think, uh, who will see that uh, this is not only better for the health of our democratic institutions, but essential if we're going to solve problems, enormously complicated and difficult problems like our national, accumulating national debt, chronically slow growth, therefore inequality, things that, that uh, trouble us all regardless of our persuasion. Well, I would say one way we could solve that is if you, if you would stop being a university president and maybe run for office again. But that's just my, that's just my personal... <laughs> um, Governor Ms. Daniels, thank you for joining us. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Good rest Thanks of so the week here. Thanks, this episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better with unlimited storage and an easy to use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame and i hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos but it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life and they have a great deal for mother's day gapfest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting auraframes.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best selling frame that's a u r a frames.com Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The Supreme Court this week wrapped up a very strange term 
Justice Scalia's death shadowed it in all respects. In its final week, there was a 4-4 non-decision that kept President Obama's immigration executive action from being, that would have protected some immigrants from from, uh, deportation and given them rights to stay in the country, working rights to stay in the country and work. This decision will now prevent that from being carried out. More excitingly for liberals, at least, the court narrowly upheld university affirmative action policies and and more, most thrillingly of all, struck down the Texas law that was ostensibly aimed at protecting the health of women seeking an abortion. The court, of course, found that, that the laws were actually an undue burden on women's reproductive rights. So, Emily, why was uh, whole woman's health such an important case? Well, we've had this undue burden standard with us in abortion law since the court's decision in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992. That was the compromise where Sandra Day O'Connor and Kennedy and at the time Justice Souter came together and tried to craft some kind of standard for allowing for some regulation of abortion that protects the state's interests in the life of the fetus and then also in protecting the health of the mother. And the question ever since then has been, well, what does this really mean? And the court had not answered it in a satisfying way. And so we'd had this wave, really a wave in, I think, almost, well, more than 20 states in the last few years of abortion restrictions that essentially were aimed at closing clinics and reducing access to abortion, but were framed in terms of protecting the health of women. And what Justice Breyer's opinion for the majority did in, um, for me, very kind of satisfying way, because it was just very factual, very plain, what he said was that what an undue burden means is that the benefits of a law, in this case for protecting the health of women, need to outweigh the burden on access to abortion that that law imposes. And what's been very frustrating about covering these um, restrictions is that the state makes these claims that were just wholly unsupported by the medical evidence. Abortion is a very safe procedure. Um, You don't need to have a clinic outfitted like an ambulatory surgical center in order to keep women safe. You don't need to have doctors with admitting privileges because if something does go wrong, hospitals accept those women anyway. Um, And so it was just a a triumph of evidence of kind of medical and social science kinds of evidence. Um, looking at this narrow question of what are these laws really designed to accomplish. And so it felt to me certainly like, you know, a victory for the constitutional right to abortion and for women's ability to control their own childbearing, but also just a triumph for factual inquiry and for allowing courts and judges to weigh evidence and think about it as opposed to simply deferring to a legislature's claims, um, no matter how specious. So much of the court now... I just don't want to seal your applause from you. That's nice of you. Thank you. So much of the court now is uh, clotted up because of the 4-4 splits. But in this, did the court basically look like it would have looked uh, before? Uh, And then I'll add this little parenthetical remark, which is that um, Donald Trump said, well, it would have been a different decision if Antonin Scalia were alive. But, of course, that can't possibly be true because it was a 5-3 decision. (laughs) If he were alive, it would have been a 5-4 decision. Yeah, his math is off. But in addition to math being off, there's no way in which... No. There's no... I mean, unless you imagine Scalia's presence would have swayed Justice Kennedy Kennedy, to the other side, which seems implausible to me. And so that takes us back to Kennedy. Is this the Kennedy we've seen... When it was a you know nine person court, it, this is familiar, or was there something new that's a part of this sort of eight person court? This wasn't a surprise for Justice Kennedy in a way that I did find his affirmative action decision to be quite a departure from what he had said merely three years ago, because Kennedy signed on to Casey, and so in that sense, this sort of basic acceptance and support for undue. Uh, burden standard, he had already demonstrated that. However, if you read his opinion from seven or eight years ago in a decision that banned a particular late-term abortion procedure, he was very skeptical of the worth of abortion, um, of the contribution it makes to women's lives, and he also wrote about women in this incredibly paternalistic, clunky way. And so, in that sense, it was surprising to see him sign on to Justice Breyer's opinion. I think the other way 
in which Scalia was really missed in this particular case is that he would have written an incredibly explosive, quotable dissent that would have really rallied the troops on the right people who oppose abortion. And instead of that, we had, I thought, a really interesting dissent from Justice Thomas objecting to the courts weighing evidence so carefully in this case, and yet really not requiring at all the same kind of social science support for its affirmative action holding. And also, I think Thomas is kind of ruining this moment of fading conservative power. Anyway, it was just a different set of dissents. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, I mean, Emily, what did you make of that Thomas dissent? The, basically, he was saying that in the affirmative action case, you didn't care about the social science evidence that you you just wanted affirmative action. Whereas in this case, you're you're all about the evidence. Right. I mean, I think he has a point. I would say two things. One, which is Justice Kennedy wrote the affirmative action decision. It would have been really interesting if any of the other four people who'd side on to it, all of the four liberal moderate justices, I don't think they would have written the opinion about in that way because Kennedy is so selective about when he cares about evidence and what kind of evidence. It's just uh, he kind of is on his own in that department. Wait, is that a flaw? But, or is there? I think it's a flaw. It seems I like think one there to me. should be a lot more. I think they should be much more rigorous in how they think about evidence. The other thing I will say, though, about affirmative action is that the court is in a box of its own making because for is years. Is that the box that Hillary Clinton was put in no, earlier box. in the last segment? No, totally different oh, box. Okay. I, I've stolen your metaphor. Um, this box dates from the 70s, in which the court said that the only permissible constitutional justification for race based affirmative action is promoting educational diversity. That means there's no room for remedying historical discrimination, for thinking about racism. And that's why we now have this very constrained set of the kinds of evidence we're even allowed to look at. Wait, can I actually, that gets to another question I wanted to ask. As we think about the court going forward, you presumably if Hillary Clinton wins, there will be a liberal justice. Perhaps uh, even Merrick Garland. Perhaps, perhaps even Merrick Garland, who will be appointed. Perhaps there will he'll be, get a, uh, confirmed before she's even sworn in. Perhaps. Right, because he'll there, be looking a lot better. To, there will be, to the, so there'll be a liberal majority. The starry decisis. The starry is going to look kind of less decisis, perhaps, to liberal <laughs> justices than it does today. Are we going to see liberal justices looking back at you know the last thirty years of jurisprudence and saying, "Well, you know, that Second Amendment right that we, the court, really firmly came down on uh, a few years ago." You know, that was. Maybe maybe I'm not so sure about that. I don't actually think that? they have a Second Amendment problem. Well, you do think? They I know I don't think they oh. do because in so. Or, well, what about an undue burden problem on somebody who wants to exercise their Second Amendment right? So, in other words, if they if they affirmed limitations on gun ownership. Somebody claims that's an undue burden on a right you've affirmed in the Constitution. Well, my annoying lawyerly answer to that is that they made up this undue burden standard specifically for abortion. Another complaint that both Alito and Thomas expressed. So they would have to decide now to export it. And maybe they would do that. And you could argue that maybe they should. But I think that their Second Amendment decision, while, yes, it affirmed that some individual right to bear arms and cities can't outright ban personal possession of handguns. There is a lot of room left for gun regulation in that decision. What I do think, sorry, um, is going to get another big look is uh, Citizens United, because that is the er example of Justice Kennedy's evidence seeming like super not compelling. I thought you guys were the ones that gave all that money after. (laughs) They want their money back. They want their money. They want to spend it on other things. Yeah. There's a, isn't there a Koch Brothers pavilion somewhere yes, on the Aspen campus? I have to give a talk in it tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Wait, so do you, in general, do you think, is there a, are there liberal lawyers who are just like licking their lips and looking out for all the kinds of ways that they can come after all the conservative jurisprudence? I mean, Citizens United is one. Are there other areas around, you know, corporations, around labor rights, women's rights that, that you think that liberal lawyers are just eager 
to yeah, get a fifth I mean, justice for. I don't think this means that we see lots of dramatic reversals because first of all, the court doesn't like to do that. They like to do more sort of like stealth little reversals where they claim they're distinguishing from this prior precedent. But you will see, so this term, we had a really important 4-4 tie in a big union case. Public sector unions, can they keep expecting receiving dues from everybody who is in the group that they're negotiating for, whether those people want to pay the dues or not? I think that, I mean, the law until now has been that, yes, indeed, unions can do that. I think that, you know, that was a moment in which Justice Scalia's death mattered entirely for the outcome. And it, that's a pretty big deal. And there, yes, there's a list, you know, in the area of criminal justice, Justice Kennedy has basically signaled he's interested in thinking about the constitutionality of solitary confinement. And you could, there's more movement to be done, perhaps in juvenile justice, and maybe even the death penalty. And maybe thinking again about proportionality and punishment, which is a line of cases that kind of died, but maybe some Someone could figure out how to resurrect it. The size of that list, list is the strongest turnout mechanism for the Trump campaign that every time I talk to somebody who's anguishing about in the Republican circles, who's anguishing about supporting Donald Trump, they, they, the thing they hang their support on is the, is the court. I mean, this is like, I've had this conversation now a thousand so times. How, so didn't, I was really surprised that he didn't say anything against the Supreme court's abortion decision. Given that it just seems like a box that you check if you're that candidate. Is that the same box? Or a different box. <laughs> More boxes than IKEA here. Um, uh, you know, that's a good. It's a good point. When he, maybe he was involved in his trade war with the with the Chamber of Commerce and no, just got distracted. No, he's been silent, and it's like noticeable. Well, yeah, well, that's calling why, him out why, so why, strange because he talks. Well, he talks that. about the court all the time. He talked about it this morning when he said it was a five three decision that would have been changed by Scalia. Yeah, wrong. Uh, so uh, he talks about the court. Has he just not figured out abortion? Well, he's had a lot of trouble. Well, I mean, abortion, his last yeah. I mean, when you, yeah, I mean, he has, he, including I mean, the questions <laughs> asked by people on this stage, he, uh, yeah, he doesn't. I mean, but on the other hand, you don't have to figure anything out. Right, you, you just, just say, say, I want This was the wrong justices. decision, yeah. and I'm going to fix it. It's, it's curious. Do you think it is, is abortion a, something he can actually play for political gain? Or does he, he doesn't have to say the word abortion. He just says judges and everybody who cares about and knows about what this decision means, mm-hmm. who is against abortion rights, will know exactly what he's talking about. I don't think he has to even say. I mean, clearly his challenge on abortion is that he doesn't that he doesn't know really where he is. And if he and and to the extent that his position has changed considerably in a short period of time, he doesn't. And this is true on a number of issues. He doesn't have the facility with language about his current position. <laughs> that so people, he does say lots of great words, right? <laughs> that people who have, you know, and this is not an issue yes. where you can just wing it. It's like, you know, all of these issues people feel and care deeply about. They think and talk about it and care about it. And so they recognize when you use, the, you know, the wrong kind of language. Or you say the truth by accident, which is that women indeed would be punished if abortion was illegal, because how else would you enforce that? Anyway. Emily, last uh, question around this, which is, so now that this kind of pretextual bullshit women's health excuse has been torched in, in abortion jurisprudence, and, and, and presumably all the other states which have similar kinds of laws, are, those laws are going to be struck down. If not immediately, it'll, you know, gradually those laws will disappear. What is going to be the legal anti-abortion strategy? Where, where, where are they going to go? Because this has been a very effective strategy over the yes, past 10 years. Yes, very effective in terms of passing laws. Passing Absolutely. laws and limiting clinics and limiting, limiting yes. abortion rights. So this is a huge loss if you are trying to re- truly reduce abortion, reduce access to abortion. But what remains, another successful approach has been these 20-week bans. So you claim with not a whole lot of evidence that fetus, the fetus can feel pain after 20 weeks, or you just try to get the Supreme Court to agree that its own standard of allowing for greater state restriction post-viability goes all the way back to 20 weeks. A lot of states have those laws now. The pro-choice legal folks have been much more reluctant to challenge them because it's not clear how many appellate courts or um, what would support that challenge. And it's not clear what this Supreme Court would do about it either. The good thing about going in that direction for abortion opponents is that it's very, lots of Americans have doubts about late-term abortions. So you're 
politically on much more solid ground than when you go after the first trimester. The problem is you're only limiting, you know, fewer than 10% of the abortions in the country. Actually, it's probably much lower than that. It's probably more like five or 3%. So you're not really making a dent. And then the, the other problem is that some of the people who are caught needing or wanting abortions after 20 weeks are in terribly tragic circumstances involving a problem with their fetus or their own health. And so there are some really sad stories that get told. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. What's the one thing when you're having a drink and and sitting out um, under the sky tonight that you'll be talking about? Emily, what do you want to chatter about? I read a terrific book recently called Imagine Me Gone. It's by Adam Hazlitt. It's a just extremely well, captivating, really, story of a family, uh, multiple generations of a family struggling with um, mental illness and mental health. So it's an English dad, and they go back and forth between Massachusetts and living in the UK. There are three children. There's a mom. And it's really about their efforts to take care of each other and remain a close-knit family unit, despite the enormous challenges that the father's mental health imposes, and also one of the kids really struggles too. And parts of the book are written from the point of view of the brother and the family who has all these mental health issues, and they're kind of hard to read. And then you realize... I think that what Adam is doing is trying to make you experience what it's like to have someone in your family who has all these issues and how hard that is. And I was just really gripped by this book and recommend it. Imagine Me Gone by Adam Hazlitt. John, what is your chatter? So uh, mine is about another book, which is um, Brain Pickings, which is one of my favorite sites, which we've mentioned a billion times before, had some audio recordings of J.R.R. Tolkien reading portions of The Hobbit. And so that was great enough as it is. So if you're that a like fan a of lost those books. recording, or just well, not you know, like many things on the internet, Who it knows? wasn't lost, perhaps, but it's new <laughs> but to me. But we all didn't know it's about new it. New to me, yeah. So this is from the from the fifties, and so it's just wonderful hearing his voice. And his voice, to me, is just exactly what you would expect. When people talk about Lincoln's voice being high and sort of tinny, you think, oh, that doesn't really match up with my idea of Lincoln. This is. This is pure, like Sonorous this is exactly, and yes, and kind of some words get lost because they're all kind of rolled in together and you feel like there's moss coming out of his ears. <laughs> what kind of accent does he have? He he's, has just like Tom the perfect Bombadil. British, yeah, it's just the perfect British accent. So, and then he sings some of the, the hymns, some of the songs in was, The Hobbit. I love that song. Uh, well, right, <laughs> yes, for some of it, it's a religious hymns. experience, but um Anyway, the, those of you who may have read The Hobbit and, and as you were kids, it feels like to me there are two kinds of Hobbit readers. There are those who skip the songs, and then there are those who really like it, luxuriate in the songs as a part of the tapestry the that he's weaving. The songs are super long. Sure, they're long, and they're, they're sort of hard to follow, and they're confusing, and um, plus you want to get back to the action. And so they feel like a commercial break that you can just fast forward through if you're that kind of reader, which uh, nobody in this not. audience... yeah. Um, anyway, so hearing him sing the songs is quite fun. But then they also have footage from an old BBC documentary about him, which is fantastic because of just the way it's an, an old documentary and has all those old-fashioned stylings of a documentary. And during one interview, somebody just walks right through the interview. <laughs> and so and it's just it's wonderful. And some of it are these sort of quasi-artistic shots where the person's talking. It feels almost like a Monty Python sketch. The person who's talking is like 200 yards away from where the camera is. And they're sitting on a bench and there's some leaves sort of in the way. You're not quite sure what's going on. But then Tolkien is in it. And he is fantastic throughout. He's wearing, he's constantly in like some fabulous tweed suit with a vest and he's smoking his pipe and he's talking about drinking beer and why all of that is so important to the narrative. And he describes himself as a, as a little kid, as a rather puny overmothered little creature, um, which sounds like he's describing one of his own. So then he describes where the, flashpoint for The Hobbit came from, which was that he was grading papers, and he talks about grading papers in the summer and how sort of tedious it was. And he comes across a paper, and somebody hasn't done the f assignment fully. And so there's just a blank page. And so in the, on the blank page, he scribbles, in a hole in the ground lived a hobbit, which is the first line, to the, to the novel. And that's where it started. Oh my God, um, I, does that so paper exist? That, that paper great. does exist that's somewhere. Awesome. It's in a in a museum somewhere. Um, anyway, so it's a treat for the eyes, the ears, and uh, and if you like that book, uh, it's a treat to hear that or origination story. My chatter is no not fun like that. So if you are a reader of Mother Jones, and I would exhort you to be a reader of Mother Jones, you will get the chance to read an extraordinary piece of journalism this month. Shane Bauer, who's a reporter, who's actually one of the um, reporters who was held hostage in Iran 
in several years ago confinement. in solitary confinement yeah. has since come back and is reporting for mother jones and he became a prison guard at a private prison in rural louisiana uh, a cca prison that's one of the the big private prison companies and it's just about his training his working at this prison and it's a 35,000 word piece so it's almost book length and it's extraordinary it's grim the portrait of the guards the guards are in this essentially the same social class as the prisoners they're paid nothing to do this quite terrible job the conditions in the prison are appalling the uh, way they the the company skirts the law about how they're supposed to treat prisoners is pretty appalling um it's a it's an amazing piece of investigative journalism i'm sure there will be lawsuits about it because the, he he became an employee of this company and this company is going to be really pissed about it but it's it's um it's very revealing it is, and it just makes you realize that when we rely on the self-presentations of companies like this to tell us, you know, how many assaults, how much money they're spending, what staffing there is, how they're treating people, they could just be completely lying to us because it just seems at several key points in his reporting that he is seeing things that the prison is denying is happening and that the prison is doing those things to make a profit. Right. And every every few paragraphs, it's interrupted with a parenthetical. The prison uh, says that staffing levels are uh, comport with federal requirements, uh, You know, even though he has just now shown you all the ways in which they don't comport with federal requirements. That does it for our show. Thank you guys so much. Our intern is Kevin Townsend. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Special thanks to the St. Regis Hotel in Aspen, Colorado. Pat Dupre and Chris Miller of Colorado Audiovisual. Paulina van der Norda, Katie van Alstein, and Libby Franklin with the Aspen Ideas Institute. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. The Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. And our email address is GabFest at Slate.com. Please subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. If you like the show, your comment and rating really helps us. Search for Slate Political GabFest in the iTunes store. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week and hopefully we'll see you at our live show in Washington on July 13th. You can get tickets for that at Slate.com slash live. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.